Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all here. For those of you who are visiting us for the first time, allow me to briefly introduce myself. My name is Darren, and I'm, I'm one of the pastoral apprentices of this church. And thank you for giving me this opportunity to share God's word with you all. Before hearing the sermon, let's come to God in prayer. Father in heaven, as we come before you today to hear your word, we pray that your word will bear fruit in our hearts by your spirit. And help me, Father, to preach your word faithfully and boldly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever thought about this question? If the Christian God of the Bible we believe in is truly good and righteous, how can he allow evil to continue to exist in this world? After all, God is holy, right? So why can't he eradicate all evil now? For those of you who are struggling with this question, take heart and be comforted. Because in our passage today, we will find answers to this question. Last week, Dinesh took us through the parable of the sower. From Dinesh, we learned that we shouldn't be discouraged when we go out to evangelize. Because the one who receives the gospel will bear fruit, 100-fold, 60-fold, and 30-fold. And we are given the choice to be like the good soil, to be the one who receives the gospel and truly understands it. Tomorrow is Christmas. As we remember the birth of our Savior during this Christmas season, our passage today will give us a snapshot of his second coming, of Christ's second coming, to help us to be prepared for his return. Looking at our passage today, we are going to continue with the next three parables. The first thing to take note of is that our text begins with the parable of the weeds. Then our text will continue with another two parables, namely the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven. And finally, this passage will end with an explanation of the parable of the weeds given by Jesus. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us why Jesus didn't explain the other two parables, but I suppose it's because the other parables are pretty much simpler and self-understandable on their own. Due to the arrangement of, of our passage today, I think the best way to go about in our sermon is to look at the two parables of the mustard seed and the leaven first. Then only we will look at the parable of the weeds because that one is much longer and has more applications for us. But before looking at the parables, let's take a look at what Matthew says after Jesus told the three parables. He says in verse 34, that Jesus said nothing to the crowds without a parable. And that in verse 35, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Here, Matthew is quoting from Psalm 78, verse 2. And the author of this psalm is Asaph. Now, if you flip your Bible to Psalm 78 with me, you will see that this parable in the psalm is somewhat different from the parable of our passage today. Asaph calls this in verse 2 as dark sayings of old, which means mysteries and readers from the past. These mysteries are about the glorious deeds that the Lord has done. It's mysterious only because it's unknown to the newer generation. But it's not so mysterious anymore because Asaph is retelling the story of Exodus to the next generation about how God has redeemed Israel from Egypt and provided for their needs in the wilderness. In verse 7 to 8 of this psalm, we know, Asaph retells this historical story 
in the form of a song, so that the coming generation will remain faithful to Yahweh and not be like their forefathers rebelling against God. But in our passage today, like Asaph, Jesus uses parables in the form of illustrative stories to teach about the kingdom of God to the next generation, who are his disciples in our passage today. So when Matthew tells us that Jesus fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Asaph, what he meant is, like, is that like Asaph, Jesus is using the parables as a storytelling method to convey a spiritual truth. Matthew shows us that there is a continuity between the Old Testament prophets and the teachings of Jesus. And Jesus stands in line of this tradition as God's chosen prophet. But of course, we need to keep in mind that he's more than a prophet since he has always been God the Son from all eternity. Thus, to fulfill his prophetic role, Matthew tells us that Jesus speaks in parables to the crowds at verse 34, and the explanation of this parable was only given to the disciples in verse 36. The reason for this was already covered in last week's sermon, especially in verse 11, which says, To you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. By looking at the parables of the master seed and the leaven, the good thing, the good thing about these two parables is that they are straightforward to understand and together they convey a single main point to us. In verse 31 to 32, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. There are two things we need to take note of. Firstly, the mustard seed is described to be the smallest of all seeds in the sense of the common Palestinian Jewish household experiences. Secondly, there's a lot of exaggeration going on in this parable because in reality, a mustard plant can never become a tree. A mustard plant is a shrub, it's a type of bush. At most, it can grow up to about 10 feet, 3 meters in height. Even though it can reach to such heights, it is still not a tree. And it's not like Jesus is making a mistake here. Jesus knows what he's doing. He intended to use this parable as a hyperbole to make this super duper exaggerating so that this parable will come across as shocking and as mind-blowing to the Jewish crowds who were listening to him at the time. Because none of them would expect that a master plant could become so big as a tree for birds of the air to make nests in its branches. It's just not possible for a normal master plant to be able to support the weight of the birds and all their nests. Then, in verse 33, Jesus tells another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a leaven that a woman took and hid three measures of flour till it was all leaven. Now I know leaven has always been used negatively in the Bible as a symbol for sin. But in this context, it is used differently in a good way to portray the growth of God's kingdom. Those of us here who knows how to bake, you know that after you mix the flour with the leaven properly, then you cannot see the leaven anymore, right? So it looks like the leaven is insignificant at first and nothing is happening. But if you just leave it there, right, and you go and do something else, then when you come back to it later, you will see, boom, what happened? 
right? The flour became so, so big. And it's even more extraordinary in this parable because the three measures of flour in our passage today is equivalent to 25 kilograms of flour. It's amazing how every part of this 25 kilo flour was being affected because of the permeating properties of the yeast. Looking at these two parables, they assure us that no matter what happened in this life, in the present moment, or in the future to come, God's kingdom will not just barely survive in this world like someone who just came out from ICU. No, 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 no. It's not going to be like that. Because God's kingdom will continue to grow and its growth is unstoppable. It will far exceed all of our imaginations, all of our expectations, just like what we have seen in these two parables. Like the parable of the mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven will start off with small, humble beginnings starting with Jesus and his 12 disciples, but eventually it will continue to grow to become the largest kingdom in this world. And we can see some of this already happening, isn't it? As of today, Christianity has almost spread throughout the world. There are Jews, Gentiles, and all kinds of people groups coming to accept the gospel. This is like the parable of the leaven, whereby the gospel is not at one thing and permeating throughout the entire world, like how the yeast can affect all 25 kilos of flour. But we need to keep in mind that what we experience now, what we see now, is not the final state of this kingdom. There's more to come. Because this kingdom is still in the now and not yet. And one day when Jesus returns, we will get to see the perfection of this kingdom. When he comes back, his kingdom will be the largest in this world, way, way bigger and greater than any human kingdoms, dynasties and nations that will ever exist. Now as we proceed to the next parable, there are two words here we need to take note of, namely weeds and wheat. Both can be kind of confusing to us at first because they sound pretty much the same. And my broken Malaysian English accent probably might not be much help either. But anyway, we have wheat, the good one, which we typically use to make bread. Then secondly, we have beets, the bad ones. Not the kind you can find in Amsterdam. By the way, those are bad as well, so please do stay away from them. Right, the bad beets here in our passage today, some Bible translation call it as tares. And I'm going to stick with this word because it's easier for us to differentiate this from the good beet. The thing about tares is that it is a poisonous plant. If you eat it, it can cause feeling of drunkenness and in some cases, fatality. It's difficult to tell how different hair looks like from the good wheat at first because they look the same right, at the beginning stage of their growth. Only later when they start to grow in their, uh, grow in maturity, then uh, we can identify which one is which. So in the Greco-Roman agricultural world, sowing tares into other people's field is an act of sabotage. Take for example, say if you are a farmer and if your neighbor for some reason doesn't like you, maybe because you have been quite mean and rude to your neighbor lately, lah, okay? Uh, then you better watch out because there's a good chance your neighbor might sow some tares in your field. And that means, oops, uh-oh, this is a problem for you, right? Because if you harvest the good wheat and the tares together without separating them and you just process them into flour, you will be risking the lives of those who consume your flour. Hence, this sabotaging act has caused so much trouble to the point of Rome condemning this act as a crime. Looking at this parable in verse 24 to 25, 
The kingdom of heaven is likened to a man sowing good seed in his field. But when the night comes, the enemy came to sow tares among the wheat. Nobody noticed that there were tares until both plants started to grow and bore grain. But what's the big deal, right? Can we just pluck them out one by one like what the servant proposed in verse 28? Well, no, we can't do that as the master explained in verse 29. No, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the weed along with them. What that means is that at this juncture, the roots of both plants have been so intertwined, so much so with each other to the point you cannot separate them so easily. So if you pull out the bad pears, the good weeds will get caught up with them as well. And that's not what we want, right? Because if we do that, then we won't have any good weeds left for harvest. So what's the solution to this problem? The solution is given in verse 30. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. The time to separate the tares from the good wheat will not take place now, but later at the time of harvest, because only at that time you can harvest both of them together without destroying the good wheat. Now what we have heard so far is just to help us to understand the illustration of the parable itself. But to understand the spiritual meaning behind this illustration, we need to look at the explanation Jesus given to his disciples in verse 36 to 43. Firstly, Jesus tells us in verse 37 that the one who sows a good seed is the son of man. That means it's Jesus himself. He's the one who sows a good seed. He often addressed himself as the son of man, which reminds us of the book of Daniel, chapter 7 where we see the glorified Son of Man sharing in the same power and everlasting dominion with God, reigning over all people and all nations. Then Jesus explains to us in verse 38 that the field in the parable resembles the world. Now some commentaries will say that the field represents a church consisting of true and false professing Christians. While I agree that this teaching is true from other parts of the Bible, I don't think we can get this teaching from our passage today because verse 38 clearly tells us that the field is the world. Again, in verse 38, Jesus tells us that the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, while the bad tares are the sons of the evil one. And then we have the devil as the enemy, the evil one who is scattering and distributing his sons throughout the world. Besides the devil, we have other spiritual beings as well. We have angels performing the role of reapers as mentioned in verse 39. They have a role to play in the day of harvest, which is the end of age in verse 40. That is also known as the judgment day. On that day, as seen in verse 41 to 42, Jesus will send his angels to separate out the sons of the evil one from the sons of the kingdom. So far, pretty straightforward for us to follow, right? And at verse 41, notice that the sons of the evil ones are labeled as causes of sin and lawbreakers. Looking at this same verse carefully, it says that the Son of Man will send his angels and will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. Now it's easy to get confused in this verse like, hey, isn't this talking about the world we live in which is represented as the few in the parable? How come now? Uh, it seems like the few is representing the kingdom of heaven. And I think the answer to that is, there's no strict separation between the world and the kingdom of heaven. They are interwoven with each other. That's why we Christians, we don't separate ourselves from the world. The church of God is different from the world, but they are still being connected with each other somehow 
like what Jesus says, right, in John chapter 17. We are in the world, but not of the world. So I hope this will bring some clarity to you all. Moving on to verse 42, what will happen on the day of judgment is that the sons of the evil ones, they'll be thrown into fiery furnace. In that place, they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Whereas for the sons of the kingdom, who are called as the righteous one in verse 43, they will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. For the Jewish disciples of Jesus who have read the book of Daniel before, they will be familiar with this allusion. Verse 43 is alluding to the resurrection in Daniel chapter 12. Reading Daniel and our passage today helps to inform us that the sons of the kingdom, the righteous ones, they will shine in glory on the day of resurrection. From this parable, we see that there are two very different fates for the son of the kingdom and the sons of the evil one. And finally, Jesus ends his explanation by saying, He who has ears, let him hear. That means pay close attention to what I have said. Listen to me carefully. Now remember at the beginning of our sermon, we asked the question something similar to this. How long, Lord? How long more will you allow evil to continue to exist? And our Lord kindly answers through this parable here by telling us that good and evil will continue to coexist with each other until the end of age. There will be a delay in judgment until that final day arrives. So how should we feel about this? Should we feel sorrowful? Should we feel a sense of disappointment? Because how can a good and holy God not remove evil from this world right now? Life in itself is already so difficult, full of suffering. But I think by now, we all kind of know the answer, right? If God removes all evil in this world now, what will happen to all humanity is like the good wheat being rooted up together with the bad tares. In other words, it means that the sons of the kingdom will be rooted up together with the sons of the wicked one prematurely. What do I mean by prematurely? To put this more clearly, you know that many people have not come to believe in the gospel yet, right? That's why we continue to evangelize by making disciples of all nations. Think about it. If God eradicates all the evil in this world right now, by making today into judgment day, then many people will be lost eternally. This includes people who were supposedly were going to believe in the gospel if you give them a little bit more time. As the Bible says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Think about your loved ones, your family, your friends who have not come to believe in the gospel. They may be just one step away from accepting the gospel. Using my family as an example, after 15 years, I'm still the only Christian. They have not accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. In this case, I hope that the Lord will give them a little bit more time to repent by coming back a little bit later. And I would deeply appreciate any prayers from you all for my family. But hey, Darren, so does that mean that it's wrong for me to yearn for Jesus to come back? Am I sinning if I'm hoping for Jesus to come back as soon as possible? And my answer to that is no, that's not a sin. It's totally fine and okay to have mixed feelings. It's okay to look forward for Christ to come back because when he comes back, all suffering will end and there'll be justice for all the evil that has been done in this world. 
and those who believe in Christ will shine brightly like the sun. At the same time, it's okay. It's okay really to wish that the Lord comes back a little bit later so that more people will be saved from the power of the devil by coming to know the gospel. You don't have to choose one emotion over the other. We can hold both conflicting emotions together in our hearts. And let's do it with patience by holding fast to the gospel as we wait for the day of judgment to come. But for those here who isn't a believer yet, I'm sure by now you have a better glimpse of who Jesus is, right? Jesus is not just an ordinary prophet of God. He's more than that since he has authority over angels as seen in verse 41. By looking at the same words, his kingdom is clearly not like any kingdom of this world. His kingdom is the kingdom of heaven, surpassing all the kingdoms of this world. Furthermore, we can tell in verse 43 that the kingdom of Jesus is exactly the same kingdom of the Father. Why? Because Jesus is God himself. He is the Son of God begotten by God the Father. So may I ask, who is Jesus to you? Is he merely an ordinary man or have you come to acknowledge him as God incarnate, the one who took on a human form? Why we need Jesus is because all of us are lawbreakers. When we sin, we break God's holy law. So, and, so in God's eye, we are criminals who deserve to be judged and punished by God. So in reality, without Jesus, we are all actually like the bad terrorists in the parable. But God the Father in His mercy sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to take on the punishment, all the curses and all the wrath of God on our behalf on the cross. But death could not contain Jesus because He rose from the grave three days later. So whoever believes in Jesus will be counted as righteous in Him. And God can now forgive all of their sins and all their wrongdoings. On the cross, Jesus is the substitute that God has provided to take away the punishment of our sins. So that on the day of resurrection, those who are righteous in Christ will receive a glorious resurrection like the sun. But if you reject Jesus, I don't like to say this, but there will be serious consequences. As we have already seen in verse 41 to 42, that those who sin and break God's law, they will be thrown into the fiery furnace. Hell is a real place. It's a place full of suffering, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a place where God's justice will be carried out. Plus, it's important to know that none of our accomplishments can save us from hell. As much as we want to take pride and glorify in all of our worldly successes, none of them will last for eternity. Do you want the world to see you to shine? To see that you have made it? What good is that if it's not going to last and bring you to heaven? All of our worldly achievements, if you are fortunate, maybe the next generation will care a little bit. But in light of eternity, it will be worthless. Jesus said, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? If you want to shine, then shine in Christ like what you see in verse 43. This kind of shining can only be acquired by being justified by grace through faith in Christ. Only this kind of shining, this kind of glory is worth it and it will last for eternity. So I want all of us here to make the right choice. I want you all to know that well, each of the parables illustrate a certain truth about God's kingdom. The good thing is that they can't illustrate everything. What that means is that all of us here have a real choice. The choice of changing our position before God as bad terrorists into good wheat. 
And we can do that by accepting Christ as our Lord and Savior. So which side do you want to be on? Do you want to remain as a bad terrorist siding with the devil? Or do you want to be the good weed siding with Jesus? May I invite you to come to accept Jesus today before it's too late? Because he can come back any moment from now. And there's another thing in this passage we need to take note of. That is, remember in our passage, we learn about the devil, right? In our modern scientific day and age, it's just so easy for us to forget about the fact that the devil truly exists. The Bible says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So watch out. The devil is here to sabotage the kingdom of God. And the devil isn't the only one out there because he sold many of his sons into the world too. Together, they are working to kill, steal, and destroy the kingdom of God. That's why God's church is always in such a mess. And sometimes it seems like whenever we move one step forward in ministry, we end up moving two steps backward instead. Hence, disappointments are bound to happen in ministry. This feeling of disappointment can happen due to various factors. Sometimes it seems like our efforts in discipling people, our efforts in evangelism are wasted, as if our efforts are going nowhere. Like the people we love and work so hard to mentor them in the Christian faith, they were enticed by the devil with the temptations of the world and they fall away from faith. Or it can be that the devil and his children are working hard to destroy the lives of the people we love. Sometimes when the devil is unable to take away the eternal life they have in Christ, he will then inflict them with many miseries of this world. It can be in a form of poverty, sickness, or even death. Or sometimes he will destroy us by giving us exactly what we want, the worldly stuff, to satisfy our sinful desires, to destroy our faith. And the devil can use temptations of the world to cause Christians within the church to fight with each other to the point where Christians are often being called as hypocrites. And this is like our first parable, right? Where it's difficult to identify the good wheat from the bad tares, especially at the beginning stage. It can be quite difficult to identify the true believers from people outside the world by our appearances. Because sometimes Christians can behave like people outside the world. And sometimes people outside the world can behave like Christians. Of course, we need to factor in the common grace of God at work within unbelievers and the existing nature of sin within Christians, which will make things more complicated for us to understand. But that's another topic for us to look into in the future. Anyway, when we look at these few examples of how the devil has been working so hard to attack the kingdom of heaven, it can be quite frustrating for us, isn't it? And we can just feel so tired, so discouraged, wanting to give up serving in the church. But I'm also to be partly blamed for all this because of my sins, especially for the times where I said unhelpful things that discourage and hurt people. So at moments like this, it really does seem like the devil has an upper hand but take heart, take comfort, my dear brothers and sisters, because while the devil may have won some of the battles here now, he has lost the war against our Lord Jesus Christ. Because no matter how many setbacks we face in our ministry now, our passage today promises us that God's kingdom will ultimately prevail. Because of the cross, God's kingdom is now victorious over all sin, over all evil, and against the devil. The victory has already taken place on the cross and we will see the fullest manifestation of this victory on the day of judgment. So take heart, take comfort. Our efforts are not wasted. As we serve the Lord by the power of His Spirit, God's kingdom will continue to grow 
and his kingdom growth is unstoppable. Plus, we need not to worry about the person we evangelize to, the person we spend time discipling, whether are they the sons of the kingdom or sons of the devil. No, that's not our job. Our job is to be faithful in bringing the gospel to everyone without any discrimination. Our Lord knows who are his people, and we can trust that on the day of judgment, his angels will be able to separate the sons of the kingdom from the sons of the evil one. As we reach to the end of our sermon today, and you find yourself still struggling with the question of how can God allow evil to exist today? Know that when we sang Joy to the World in our first song, our singing wasn't in vain. We will experience the perfection of this joy, where there will be no more sins, no more sorrows, at the second coming of our Lord. So can I encourage you to patiently endure the devil and his wicked sons to coexist with God's kingdom until Christ comes back again? Justice will eventually be served, and God knows when is the best time to remove all evil. Can I also encourage you to rest assured in God's sovereignty that He will continue to grow His kingdom despite all the setbacks and frustration we experience. After all, God surely loves His kingdom so much more than us loving His kingdom. So we can be encouraged by the fact that God is awake God is still working and he will work through us as we make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded us. And behold, he is with us always to the end of age. When he returns, we will see the perfection of his kingdom. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for your word. As we learn from your parables today, help us to take comfort and joy knowing that your kingdom of heaven will prevail against the devil. And there's nothing the devil can do to stop your kingdom from growing to, be, to become the greatest kingdom in this universe. So grant us patience to endure against the evil of this world and the strength to press on in serving you as we re- await the return of your son. And we pray, Father, for the people here who are tired, who are hurting, and discourage. May you bring comfort to them by your spirit and help us to love and care for them as well. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.